0: Yale
1: Podcast
0: Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. This February, we've partnered with the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale for a special Chewing the Fat event series entitled Cooking Across the Black Diaspora. In addition to Black History Month, The collaboration commemorates this year's 50th anniversary for both the Afro-American Cultural Center and Yale's Department of African-American Studies. Building upon the conversations with past Chewing the Fat guests like Michael Twitty and Leah Penniman, the series celebrates the food traditions and innovations of Afro-and-Black identifying peoples. In hosting Naisha Arrington, Paula Velez, Kiki Luya, and Bryant Terry, this series creates space for four chefs to share their stories of food and identity heritage and resilience, healing and justice. Cooking across the black diaspora begins with Naisha Arrington, chef and founder of LA restaurants Leona and Native. Naisha's had an incredible culinary career, from training in Michelin star kitchens, to TV appearances, to most recently competing at the acclaimed international chef championship, d'Or. We speak to her more on her Afro-Korean roots, and how her heritage has inspired her to create such original and artistic, Here's Naisha chatting with podcast manager Amy Zhang.
2: So you have this rich cultural heritage and you grew up in Southern California. So can you tell us a little bit about how that has shaped your upbringing and your relationship to food?
1: Yes, definitely my culture and heritage and growing up in Los Angeles. I really feel like it was destined and sort of written in the stars for me to be a chef. I come from... A multicultural sort of array of background, uh, Black, Korean, Cherokee, Indian, Japanese, and Caucasian as well. And then growing up in Los Angeles really gave me this amazing terroir to draw inspiration from, which has naturally really played into my food today and, and sort of articulating my heritage through a plate. Both of the restaurants that I've had have been kind of rooted in celebrating multicultural facets. But I come from a French fine dining background, and I kind of use and draw techniques from that and draw from different heritage and kind of make this amazing entity that comes from my soul. Mm. It almost seems as if there's a synergistic effect from
2: all of the different influences. Absolutely,
1: right? and that comes from both tangible and intangible entities. you know it comes from lineage and heritage. It comes from my grandmother. I say that, you know, from a love standpoint, you know, that was something that I felt through my grandmother's cooking. I think that food is a very special thing, and it's a transfer of energy, from a family aspect, from. You know, being a steward of the land, from a farmer growing an amazing product, from an artisan being so passionate about their craft and making a goat cheese or a rancher that raised this amazing calf or milk or, you know, the entire sort of smaller footprints that make up the end result adds up to the bigger equation. You know, and then from the chef standpoint, I'm able to take that sort of like behind the scenes part of it and then bring that to life by applying, you know, my inspiration from around the world and inspiring my team to also love what they do and bring that to the guest. You know, there was someone sitting and enjoying one of my dishes and she looked like a little despondent. And I, you know, I said, "Are, are you enjoying the dish? And she said, I've transcended to (laughs) heaven. She's like, this is, I feel you through this plate. And it like literally made my eyes well up because it's just like, that's such, that's the goal, you know, to just not to create, just to create. You know, for me, it's to create, to feel, you know, and to bring life. You know, it's being a chef and being in the service industry, it's a lot about coming from a place of being humble and a place of, nurture, you know. So that's probably the long-winded answer of your question, but you know, yeah, I think it's uh it's really the beauty is in the intangible as well as the actual tangible entity of the food that comes from the creative process.
2: I really like what you said, transfer of energy. So, when you're cooking at home with your family members, I think that's a very intimate process. It's a great way to bond with your family members, and it seems like a part of that extends into your behind-the-scenes work at a restaurant. So I guess, can you compare what it's like to cook at home today versus cooking in a restaurant, say?
1: Yes. So like for me, at home is cooking with my immediate community. I have a small garden, and the people that are in my building, we all sort of chip in and take care of this garden that feeds us, you know, so that's sort of the immediate transfer of energy. We're all watering, tending, you know, and then it nurtures our bodies. Sort of like a step larger from that, I have, you know, a farmer sort of community that, you know, I go to the farmer's market and, you know, there's the artisans, the ranchers, the farmers that are there. Like, you know, I grew this on my plot of land. I'm excited about this amazing potato you should try this out, you know, and that's, for me, that transfer of energy through seeing that brought to life, you know, and then from like a restaurant professional cooking standpoint, there's a lot more facets to it. You know, you really have to sort of gather up this unison in the goal, you know, because it's not just sure when I'm at home and you know, I'm cooking for just my immediate friends and family. It's easy because a lot less can, like, go wrong, so to speak. But when you have dollars in play, you know, and you have a huge team to manage and operate, it's important for everyone to have the same common goal to rally around. And it's a different—it's just a different approach.
2: Mm, That That makes sense. Yeah. So it seems like you go to farmers' markets a lot. So there's an importance of using locally sourced ingredients but you also have this really interesting global experience where you travel to different parts of the world and integrate these global flavors. So, is there a balance that you strike between local ingredients and a global palate? Yes,
1: and it's so funny when you when so like global palate. I love that. It could be it could be a an ingredient, and it could also be a technique, right? So, like for example, from a local sustainable you know, farm sort of lens, I can take anything like, you know, a squash, right? That's in season. And then a technique from, you know, like a picking duck. Like I did a, I did this dinner based off of a whole pig cooking and um, and I cooked it in many different like sort of levels and platforms of uh, technique and style. So it cooked in a cahachina. so, and then... Uh, dried it out, and then poured the hot fat over it, which made it like a crackling, you know. So it's like using that and then like different flavor components um, really kind of gather up this entire uh, experience that make it special, you know, where you can, it might be a global technique or a global flavor or spice, but you can use a local ingredient, you know, a vegetable or uh, animal protein and sort of
2: melt the two. That's really cool. I've heard you use the term palette development. So is that a process that begins in your childhood and your upbringing? And I imagine that it's still evolving. So can you tell us a little bit about how your palette development process has been like?
1: Yes, I, I, you know, it's definitely one of my favorite subjects. I think palette development really is an art form in itself. And ultimately, it comes from the journey, you know, and what you want to feel right? Like when I approach a dish, you know, I always draw like, I call it my like matrix. So I'll draw like a big cross and then, you know, I'll list adjectives. Like what's my intention essentially? Is this dish masculine? Is it feminine? Is it bold? Is it soft? Is it elegant? Right? So I'm already starting to like conjure these ideas about the articulation of product before it's enjoyed on the palate, right? Because it's about tapping into the senses. So when I was young, you know, I ate a lot of different, not different, maybe from an American palate standpoint, you know, it wasn't like chicken fingers or like things like that. You know, it was octopus. It was gochujang. It was kimchi. It was bossam. It was like all these delicious, amazing flavors, you know, and eating with chopsticks and understanding from a very young age, which left a huge impact on me to understand a culture through food. It's all about the arts, you know, music as well. But to understand a culture through food, for me, that was my experience at a very young age. So that's why I kind of say like it was written in the stars for me to be a chef because I understood palate development at a very young age and it's as simple as my grandmother cooking for me and it's also funny stories I learned that from a very young age through eating this like starburst. <laughs> and it's funny because I remember, like your parents might take you to like a corner store and you get like a treat or something. But I remember is that I'd left one of the starbursts in the back seat of my parents' car, like it like fell in the seat or something. And I remember we were driving somewhere and I found it, and it was banana flavored, and it was summer, but I remember I ate it and it was soft. And it was a completely different experience for me as a kid. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so I felt like just something simple like that, you know, understanding palate is like, you know, how the food is registered in the brain from just your tongue, you know, your literal palate. So I think that over time, you start to understand how these foods make you feel. Are they briny? Are they salt forward? Do they sort of hug your soul? Are they brothy? You know, all these things that register as food data. It's really through experiencing different flavors from different cuisines and and sort of delving into that creative process. That's really cool that
2: cooking is a sort of art form. So there's a lot of experimentation, sensation going on. You can learn about a culture through food. There's different sounds, different colors. Can you tell us more about how this is an artistic creative process? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So for me, you know, growing up, I've always been in the arts, whether that was painting or sculpting. Those are sort of different mediums of art, which tend to be self-expression, right? It's making the intangible that lives in your soul and through your life experience tangible, whether that's through a painting or what have you. And an artist, right, when people think of an artist, someone who like holds a paintbrush to a canvas, they're diving into the same creative process as a chef, in my opinion. For me, my palate, my palate of of articulation is temperature, it's texture, it's aroma, it's sound. My canvas might be the dining room. How does my guest feel when they walk through? Is it vibrant and boisterous? You know, is there tons of energy? Or is it subdued and classy or like, you know, white tablecloth, elegant, fine dining? And all of those articulations of the dining experience makes one feel before they even delve into the food. So in the artist brain of a chef, it's really evoking what you want that guest to experience and how you want
2: them to feel when they leave. So I guess moving on to some of your concrete experiences, part of your learning process in becoming a chef so you went to culinary school and you trained with renowned chefs at Michelin award winning restaurants. So I imagine those are really rewarding, interesting experiences. So can you tell us about what was your growth like in that time period of your life?
1: I love this question. It's it's, a, it's an interesting time, you know, and one day I'll write a memoir about it because I think it's a really special experience. I have to say, you know, being in those kitchens are very challenging. And I have to say, if I did not sort of curate my tool belt of life prior to stepping into those kitchens, they would have eaten me alive like they have so many. By that, I mean playing a lot of team sports, understanding that you're only as strong as your weakest link, studying martial arts. You know, almost being like a Jedi in the kitchen and having self-discipline and work ethic, you know, from just my parents making me wake up in the morning and go rake the leaves or, you know, and do stuff, you know, take out the trash and just have life skills, you know, as a young adult really helped me to have staying power within myself and in the kitchen. And just this upward mobility, this tenacity to have upward mobility within my career and to want to be the best, you know, have the sharpest knife in the kitchen and not have an ego, really, and just to sort of, um, you know, understand how I play on this team. So in saying that, you know, it's it's definitely challenging. I, I remember, you know, seeing a lot of like really hectic things, you know, like uh, physical and verbal abuse a lot. You know, you just it, it, in the European style kitchens, that that was kind of the norm back then. It's not so much anymore. Not like cooks would like get punched in the face or something like that, but just like, like I remember watching this gentleman had forgot to put lemon juice in one of the dishes and the chef like squeezed the lemon on his head, you know? And it's like, it's just, it's so, it's like degrading, you know, for people like they're, you know, crazy stuff. You know, this woman chef, you know, one um, of the kitchens, she was a sous chef and she she did the fi- butchered the fish wrong or something, and they like threw the whole fish at her, you know. And just like seeing stuff like that is, it's really interesting to kind of reflect on moments like that. Having not been in that for so long, I've watched grown men do. I did watch a grown man get slapped in the face open-handedly once for not uh, carving the lamb correctly. So it was like a tableside preparation. Oh my god! I know. And then he he came back off after the Giridon— which is like a tableside preparation. Of, and um, the chef saw the lamb and he's, and, and he'd cut it on the wrong side of the grain. He didn't cut it against the grain. He cut it with the grain. And he like 10 seconds, just like open hand slapped him. And everyone in the kitchen was like, and just like went back to like staring at their cutting board and was like, don't make eye contact, you know? And, um, you know, it's just a lot of, you know, it's a high pressured environment. There's a lot of expensive product at, at play. And, You have to be like a robot in those kitchens, like very meticulous. There is not any sort of one thought that is not calculated. You know, you really have to look and plan out your what we call mise en place in the industry or pre-preparation or sort of everything in its place is the little translation. And good and bad experience in my life. You know, I learned a lot of how not to be and I learned a lot about how to be very attention to detail oriented. You know, I learned how to manage my time because a lot of times you have this insurmountable sort of wall of like duties and tasks that you're tasked to do and it sometimes feels like impossible. And so that's where teamwork comes into play. That's where time efficiency, mise en place come into play. You know, like you're weeded one day that your friend on Garmagee maybe doesn't have so much to do so you might be like hey can you help me out and pick these herbs for me you know and they're like and then you do the same for them the following day so
2: definitely interesting experience <laughs> yeah. hopefully it's changing but a lot of these european style kitchens in america are typically dominated by white men so how do you think your positionality in terms of your race and your gender has affected you as you navigated these spaces?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm still I'm still asking myself this question because I have to say, 17 years in this industry now, I was conditioned—it it makes you this very militant person. You know, you almost kind of have these, like, blinders on in the chef world, right, from like a cook standpoint, where it's like, you're just— thinking about how can I be the best? How can I be the best? And nothing else really matters outside of your life, like your own personal self care, like nothing else really matters. And, you know, for so long, I didn't even look at myself as I'm the only female in the kitchen. I'm the only black female in the kitchen because I just wanted to be the best, you know, and I'd be silly to say that everyone else didn't see that. I may have not seen that, but for sure everyone else did. And maybe not in the most positive light, you know, because you get looked over a lot of times, you know, maybe from being promoted or, you know, things like that. But I have to say for me, I really rely on um, just hard work. And I really had a wherewithal about myself to just continuously have upward mobility and navigate my life in a way that I'm trying to always keep the end goal in mind. It might not be the most best case scenario at that time, but... It will mean something in the future. But yeah, it's uh, definitely interesting. I have to say like nine times out of 10, I was the only female in the kitchen and definitely 9.99 times out of 10, the only like black person. So it's interesting how you have to show up in the, the kitchens and then also from a macro standpoint, what that means to the world, you know, and I have to be honest, I don't think I understood My own sort of social responsibility in that. And I say that in a way that now I do. And I
2: carry it with such admiration and great value. It seems like you did achieve upward mobility when you opened two restaurants in LA. Can you tell us about the inspiration for that and what the process was like? 100%. It's so funny because
1: when I opened my first restaurant, Leona, you know, I waited a long time. Like, on paper, to open my first place, and a lot of people in LA were, were like, "Finally, you opened a restaurant." But for me, I just really liked being a part of a team. I liked working for in restaurants, and for me, just I wanted everything to be the perfect fit before I went to open one. And it's funny because I was actually planning to move to New York before uh, we opened, and then that was a big year. That was 2015, 16, and you know, they named me. Chef of the Year through Eater Los Angeles, which was super cool. And like top 10 dishes of all of Los Angeles, they'd written, you know, about my dumpling squash dish that was, looking back, it it, it was a vegan dish. But, you know, my intention was not to say, like, I'm going to make the most delicious vegan dish. Like, it's just delicious. And the writing was about, like, how I was able to celebrate the vegetable, And, you know, it's put in the top 101 restaurants per the uh, Los Angeles Times. And, you know, a lot of times you have to be open for many years to even be considered. So it was a big feat to be listed in that publication. Yeah, it was beautiful. The community really rallied around it. And then sort of when I thought about it, because it's it can seem like a really daunting thing. You're like, you know, I was fairly young, you know, I mean, in my early 30s opening this restaurant and like, You know, now I feel like a lot of restaurants like open and close so quickly, but I feel like when I opened it, you know, I literally pulled out my sketchbook like I always do. And I have this like insatiable thing about me where I always need to feel like I'm a trailblazer in the industry and like doing something that hasn't been done before. And so it's interesting when I in just this sort of self-development process that I've been in throughout life. You know, I really was adamant on understanding the parameters and the guidelines of cooking and restaurant culture and operations and all these things, and, and more so menu design, understanding those parameters, and then taking that and sort of coloring entirely outside of the lines, you know, that's definitely was my approach. So my first, I called uh, Progressive California Cuisine, which hadn't existed I just made it up because I thought about myself and I said, you know, who am I? And I think that I'm a progressive thinker and, you know, I'm born and raised in California. So I thought progressive California cuisine sounds like a more of a movement than just I could have said, you know, French California cuisine or some things like that. As I thought about it and sort of like my brainstorming Korean California cuisine, I thought about all these things, but I wanted to have it be all encompassing because I'm always sort of fearful, for lack of a better term, to be put in a box. So I didn't want to be like, just I, I only do this, you know, so I wanted to keep it sort of this ambiguous space, but all-encompassing. So I thought progression, you know, is a forward-moving term. And then California cuisine is known for being sort of this amalgamation of different flavors and cultures. And then uh, native was just a literal term. I'm a native Angelino, California, born and raised. So I really did some soul searching. I was like, you know, how do you show up in your second restaurant? Like, what does that mean in terms of progression of your food? You know, so I thought, like, let me take the scope, one more scope further and say it's not just progressive California cuisine. It's Angeleno cuisine. You know, it's being a native Angeleno. So that was the uh, thought of inspiration was Angeleno cuisine. And for me, that was more of the intangible. That was more of the idea of drawing everyone at the dinner table to connect so maybe the third iteration will be another mm-hmm. scope smaller and i'll come up with a brand new term
2: i'll <laughs> see looking forward to what it mean? moving on to food media you've been on food competition shows including uh-huh. top chef what were your experiences like and how do you think food media plays a role in the general public
1: yeah it's a fascinating topic you know these like reality-based cooking competitions. I remember when I was working in this three-star Michelin kitchen, this was probably 2008. And I remember the show had reached out and they wanted me to be on the competition show. And I was like not in that headspace. You know, I thought back then it was like, you're either a chef, like a restaurant chef, or you're like a TV chef. And at that time it was like, Bobby Flay, Emeril, you know, Gail Gann for pastry, like, you know, the food network was really it, you know, and you had these what they call stand in stir shows of like people showing you a recipe, you know, add one tablespoon of this, you know, and voila, you know, they swap it out. And now it's kind of like all the competitions and now it's, you know, there's lots of different other facets nowadays, but for me back then, I was like not into it. And I thought it was almost like selling out, you know, because that's what it was. You know, it just the space didn't exist, which has obviously changed. But really, I started doing a lot more food media because I really want to touch a broad audience. And I feel like, sure, I can invite 150 guests into my restaurant each night. And those are like small interactions. But if I could touch 150,000 people, then that's true life legacy, you know, and you can really share your articulation of food with a broad audience. So I think that there's space for all, you know, entities of this expression. But yeah, the competition shows were funny experience for sure.
2: <laughs> so when you say you want to reach a broad audience, earlier you said you were, you were interested in the diaspora, specifically the Black diaspora. So are you targeting your message in any way or not really? This is
1: a fascinating question because for me, it's a lot about self-discovery. And, you know, when I was coming up, you almost had to take up less space as a Black American, Asian American, female in professional environments, right? This is all like looking back. At the time, I didn't really think about it. But you almost had to take up less space, you know, and be quieter or like not have an opinion. And now I feel empowered to share my knowledge more so than ever and be proud of my culture, right? Because it's important to show up and be responsible for other people that may look like you, you know, and maybe feel like they don't have a voice as well. And I think it's really cool to start to have these conversations of inclusion and diversity and female empowerment even, because... For so long, that's the dialogue that wasn't celebrated. So I stepped two feet into that with all of my
2: heart. What would you tell the next generation of chefs or the next generation of restaurateurs?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I have to say uh, empathy is something that I really value. Not even just from like a hippy-dippy like way to say that. You know, I think it's important to try to understand and walk through the lens and the shoes of other people from a cultural standpoint, from a gender standpoint, from a religion standpoint. I think that that adds value to the food and beverage sort of hospitality space because for so long you didn't have that, you know, and not to sound, I don't know, biased or... However, maybe it could be interpreted, but, you know, for a long time you had like the darker skin, like brown people in the back and like Europeans in the front, you know, sort of like more fair complex people or, you know, so I think it's cool to celebrate, you know, and bring these different cultures all around as like equality. You know, I think that's going to be a huge dialogue that you see in the food and beverage space because you see it start to uh, emerge, you know, before 10 years ago or so. You would have like more ethnic dishes on quote unquote, like for a family meal, you know, like Latino people, like maybe making like family meal, with these like Latin bold flavors or like Thai flavors or African flavors. And now their restaurant concepts built off of these ideas of like those being dishes that you had in the back before it was like French fine dining cuisine is like considered to be the like highest form of dining, but that's not the case. It's just different, you know, and that's that region's culture and interpretation of how to dine. And maybe that is a simulation of opulence. But now I feel like it's important to bring those flavors to the forefront and have them equally be celebrated. But I think for future chefs, I think it's important to, stay true to your message. And I think it's important to not have, uh, to not rush the career, you know, and I think as cost of living goes up over time, it's difficult to maybe only have one job kind of thing. You know, when you're putting in your time and you're cutting your teeth, so to speak, it's it's difficult because it's not the most glamorous job at all. So I think it's important to, you know, based off what I've seen, based off of young chefs reaching out to me, You know, from a global standpoint to just people in my immediate network, I'll get messages from, like, women or kids in, like, Dubai or, like—and it's so cool. I mean, that's what's so fun about the Internet nowadays and having access to communication at such a high level. But I think it's important to continue to fill the bucket, you know, like, diversify your knowledge base. Like, it's not just about going into a restaurant and saying, like, I'm going to learn from this chef and learn this technique about— Indian cuisine or whatever, you know, it's like also spending the weekends at a different like cultural center or going outside and like spending some time on a farm, you know, and learning from the perspective of the people who are stewards of the land, you know. And ultimately for me, that's why I chose being a chef, because I think it's this sort of nucleus of like where human beings emanate from is Mother Earth. So that's all-encompassing.
2: Well, that was my <laughs> last question, actually. So are there any last thoughts that you would like to share?
1: Well, it is an honor and pleasure to have my humble perspective be shared with you today, for sure. My goal is really just to be a conduit of love through food. You know, that's definitely... Been an anchoring thought in my repertoire. So, yeah, I'm honored to be here.
2: Thank you so much for being
1: here. Of course.
0: From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. You can follow Naisha on Instagram and Twitter at Naisha Joyce. Stay tuned, especially for her two new TV series, The Kitchen on the Food Network and Eater Plateworthy. This episode was produced by Alexa Stanger, Amy Zhang, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the following organizations for also supporting Naisha's visit. The Asian American Cultural Center at Yale, Pearson College, and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. We'll see you again in two weeks with our next guest for Cooking Across the Black Diaspora. Paula Velez, Executive Pastry Chef at DC-based restaurant Kith and Kin.